Well, here we are at the end of October again, this time of year. The days are getting shorter and shorter. The leaves are turning those bright colors and falling off the trees. The air gets colder, gets crisp at night, and we love to think back to all that God did at the end here of October, to all that God did during the 16th and the 17th centuries towards the during the time of the Protestant Reformation in Europe where he worked through his people in order to recover and to preserve the great truths that his church stands on. Those truths include the truth that his word alone is our inerrant and all-sufficient source of authority for everything in the lives of faith that we live, that every part of His Word is profitable to us, including parts like this in Hosea chapter 4. And we rejoice in the fact that He has preserved the truth through His Word, that we are saved from our sin by the great sovereign grace of God alone, that we have been justified through faith alone, apart from anything that we could ever do to earn God's favor Faith in Jesus Christ alone, because He is the one who did it all in His perfect life of obedience and His perfect work on the cross. And so all of it is for the glory of God alone, because as Paul says in Ephesians 2, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And as we've been studying the book of Hosea together, even just the last few weeks, we've really seen, haven't we, in the first three chapters of Hosea, what a powerful picture of the gospel this book is. What a powerful picture of the gospel of God's sovereign grace and unmerited love He has painted for us here in the book of Hosea. We saw it very profoundly last week where we understood that we are identified with Gomer, Hosea's unclean, unfaithful wife. And that God, especially and ultimately in Jesus Christ, God is identified with Hosea, the unconditionally loving husband who loves his faithless bride with redeeming love, with refining love, with faithful love in spite of her persistent and ongoing unfaithfulness. God's love forgives, God's love justifies, God's love washes, God's love purifies and makes us white as snow, though our sins were as scarlet, as he says in Jeremiah chapter 1. So that by being loved by him to the uttermost, he accepts us fully, even though we were unlovely, And He makes us lovely by cleansing us, by conforming us from one level of glory to the next, like Ian read at the beginning of the service, to the image of the glory of Christ as He works to present us to Himself as His bride without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. So I want you to keep all of that in mind about the redeeming, refining, faithful, never-failing love of God towards unlovely sinners like us. Keep it all in mind 
as we come today to Hosea chapter 4, because this is a tough one, and there's not a lot of mention of God's grace and love towards sinners in this chapter, and so we give thanks to God for giving us the overview picture of where this is all going in the opening three chapters that provide the context for us today. Here, chapter 4, God is proclaiming in no uncertain terms His absolute hatred of sin and the righteousness of His holy justice by which He always deals with sin. And we have to anchor our view of this chapter and some of the chapters that are to come. We have to anchor them to the whole book of Hosea because in the whole book, God is ultimately, and and not only in this whole book, but in the Bible as a whole, God is ultimately proclaiming that yes, He hates sin. And yes, He always deals with sin in His justice and righteous wrath. And yes, we are all of us desperately sinful people, no less than Gomer, no less than Israel, pictured and proclaimed here. And yes, God loves us anyway. And He has, just like Hosea, He has at great cost to Himself in Christ Jesus, He has redeemed us in spite of ourselves. And He has and He will and He is refining us, sanctifying us, purifying us as His bride, presented holy and blameless to Him. So as we come now into these chapters where God is indicting human sinfulness as a holy judge and exposing it in painful detail, in all of its fullness, in all of its filthiness and ugliness, remember, remember, that it is ultimately God's unrelenting faithfulness to love us anyway. (laughs) That is the underlying message here in the book of Hosea. That's where all of this is heading. It's not proclaimed in order to leave us hopelessly, hopelessly exposed in our guilt and shame, but in order to assure us that as we have, by His grace, come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, He will never, ever cast us out. And we need to hear that all the time. Those were Jesus' own words, right? In John 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, if you're here today, it's because you're a Christian who has come to Jesus. Because the Father in all of His holy wrath against sin and in all of His great unconditional love towards you as a sinner, has given you to Christ to be redeemed, to be washed, to be cleansed, to be sanctified. And in Christ, that's what you are if you have come to Him. And that's how God sees you in Christ. Forgiven fully, justified completely, washed, cleansed, purified, White as snow, though our sins are like scarlet. I, again, in the, in the words of the prophets. This is actual truth. It is by grace alone. It is through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is why we say glory be to God alone. So let's look at Hosea chapter 4. With all of that in our minds, with all of that as the context for our focus. And I want you to notice with me t- here today 
that in this chapter, God is not just dealing with sin individually in terms of the, the, the specific lives of individual people. He's, he's dealing with sin in a corporate sense and not just individually. He hates sin in every single individual heart and he deals with it that way too. But there is also a reality in which sin corrupts corporately. In this case, the entire nation of Israel. And it is to them together that God is speaking in judgment. And that makes me think a lot, as we're going to see here going through the chapter, makes me think a lot about our nation. About the United States of America, which has in so many ways become characterized by the same kinds of idolatry and and wickedness that God is indicting here through the prophet Hosea. And so in this chapter, we're going to see God as the judge in His courtroom. That's the picture to have in your mind. He's behind the bench. He's got His gavel. And He's passing judgment. We're going to see God's indictment against sin in the first three verses. And then we're going to see in verses 4-6, through His identification of the guiltiest ones who stand before Him. And then we're going to see his, his implicating them in their sin in verses 7 through 10. And in verses 11 through 14, God gives his own divine interpretation of how sin works, how it operates. And then in the closing verses, verses 15 through 19, God proclaims a very, very important injunction which essentially comes down to this. Having proclaimed the severity of sin, how sin works, His holy hatred of sin, He tells His people to stay away from sin. Don't go anywhere near it. Stay away from the decay. So let's take a look at this chapter as a whole today. And let's start with the opening three verses in God's holy indictment against the sin that was, that was festering in the whole nation of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. The word controversy there in verse 1, it's a word that is, is often used in a legal setting. So the sense of it is more like some other English translations bring out, like the the King James, the NIV, the Lord brings a charge against them. That's more what is being said here. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says the Lord has a case against them. As a judge, He's making a case. That's exactly what it means. That's what God is doing here because He is the Holy One who judges the whole world in righteousness, Psalm 98 says. He's sitting behind the bench in the divine courtroom. He's bringing a a, a sovereign indictment against sin and sinners in 8th century Israel. And right there in verse 1, He summarizes His case against them very, very succinctly by boiling it down to three main issues. There is no faithfulness. There is no steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God in the land. And he goes on in verse 2, he enumerates a lot of examples of sin, swearing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They break all the bounds. They, they shed blood. There's violence going on. 
But see, all of those are outward manifestations of these three core problems. No faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. From that fetid soil comes all of the hideous outgrowth of sin that was polluting the land of Israel. The word faithfulness. There's no faithfulness, God says. It's the Hebrew word emet, and it means, it's just a basic word. It means basic, common honesty and reliability. It means trustworthiness, dependability. To stand on objective truth with integrity and devotion that is resilient and that leads towards dependable living. That's what this word means, right? You do what's right no matter what temptations there are to waffle and compromise. And there are all kinds of temptations, right? There are temptations from worldly wisdom. There are temptations from false teaching to call objective truth into question in the first place. There are temptations from our own selfish, greedy, lustful, often lazy flesh to do what we want instead of standing firm for what's objectively right and good and beautiful and true. There are temptations that come to us from other people who might pressure us or shame us or threaten us or even persecute us for doing what's right and that might cause us to to waffle, to crumble, to cave. And it's when we crumble under those kinds of pressures and temptations and, and fail to do what's right that we're being unfaithful. And that's when we become undependable, unreliable. And that's what God is describing as as being a a spiritual pandemic in the 8th century in Israel. Everyone was just being driven by their own desires, their own lusts, their own feelings. They were being driven by the fear of man more than the fear of God. They They were defined more by popular opinion than the Word of God and its objective reality and truth. They were driven by temptation and by the corruptions of the world and by the snares and schemes of the devil. And so no one was being faithful. No one could be counted on to do what was right. Corporately, they were characterized by unfaithfulness. And we need to look at our own lives, don't we? We need to look at our own land, don't we? And recognize the rampant unfaithfulness and the fact that it comes from a cowardly refusal to stand for truth and righteousness no matter what. No matter what anyone else thinks, because what God thinks is all that matters. No matter how tempting the the falsehoods may be and the unrighteousness may be. We need to stand firm because the the pleasure that unrighteousness and sinfulness offers is, is phony. It's fraudulent. It's destructive. There is a way that seems right unto man, but its end is destruction and death. And so we need to identify unfaithfulness in our lives, in our land, and its sources, and stand firm for truth. 
Second thing that God highlights there in verse 1, which is lacking in Israel, is steadfast love. This is the word hesed in Hebrew. And that is the word that God uses so often to talk about the love with which He loves His people even though they're sinful. Even though they're unfaithful. This, this kind of love it is, a, is an especially loyal love. A strong love, love that endures, love that perseveres, love that cannot easily be broken. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Lamentations 3, right? That kind of love is what chesed love is. It's a love that's not rooted to fleeting feelings or to fickle circumstances. It's a love that's not dependent on what other people do to earn it. And so it can be easily compromised. It's not that kind of love. It's, it's the love by which God binds Himself to His people by His own faithfulness, not dependent on theirs. Covenant love that holds on to them firmly because He is the omnipotent God. And it's that kind of love that's ultimately selfless and unconditional and sacrificial and perseveres and endures and and binds and holds. That's the kind of love God expects and demands and requires of image-bearing people. Because this is the love that forms powerful bonds, family Bonds that can't easily be broken. And that's what he expected in Israel especially because they had been loved this way by him. But, but in Israel, this kind of love was nowhere to be found. The people were fickle. The people were selfish. And all of their love was sensual and not substantial. Derek Kidner says it like this. He says, What should have been a faithful home and strong family had turned into a den of lust and violence. Again, we need to look at our own lives, right? We need to look at our own land. Is the love that we claim to have the kind of love with which God has loved us? Or is it that kind of wimpy, conditional, selfish love? that is conditioned on what others do for us in order to earn it. And we're only willing to extend depending on what we get out of it. That's not how God loves. We need to look at our land where we could very easily say the same thing that God said about Israel nearly 3,000 years ago. Whatever kind of love it is that characterizes our land, it's not the steadfast love of the Lord, is it? In America, it's a deeply selfish and perversely sensual now kind of corrupt and counterfeit love that our land is infected with. And God despises it, and and so should we. And we should certainly make sure that it never comes to influence and define the love with which we love. So there's no faithfulness in Israel. There's no steadfast love in Israel. Thirdly there, just in verse 1, there's no knowledge of God in the land. That's an easy one to draw parallels to our own land, right? No knowledge of God. And if they claimed that they had a knowledge of God, if they stood up in their own defense and said, no, no, we know the Bible, we know the Scriptures, 
we understand in our minds what God has revealed, then whatever case they're trying to make in their own defense can be easily disproven by the first two indictments, right? Whatever you think you know, you don't know anything about if there is no faithfulness or love in your life because true knowledge of God defines the way you live. The utter lack of faithfulness, the utter lack of actual love came from their rejection of God and of His truth as the unwavering standard by which they would live their lives. To truly know God means to walk according to His ways. To truly have knowledge of God doesn't just mean to be capable of of spewing accurate theology. A lot of people can do that. I don't care. God doesn't care if you're not living in faithfulness and love. To know God means to abide in the holiness of who He is. Listen to His words in Jeremiah speaking to the sinful king of Judah, King Shalom, and contrasting Shalom's unfaithfulness with the faithfulness of Shalom's father, Josiah. Shalom thought he was really impressive because he had built for himself a a big palace out of the finest and most expensive cedar wood. So he thought, this makes me a very successful, impressive king. And God says to him in Jeremiah 22, he basically says, I'm not impressed with your house. Do you think you're a king because you compete with cedar? Did not your father, here's the contrast, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? That's what God is impressed with. And so it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. And so it was well with him. Listen to what God says. Is not this to know me? You see what he's saying? Judging with righteousness and loving the poor and the needy, being faithful, being lovely, this is what it is to know God. You don't know anything about me if it doesn't affect your life. That's what it is to know God according to God, to walk righteously, to love faithfully. And again, you don't know anything about Him if all your knowledge isn't translating into true faithfulness and righteousness and holiness and love. And I'll tell you this, and I still say, God bless America. I love our country. But if He's going to keep on blessing America, then it's going to be in spite of America at this point, right? Because here now, in the 21st century nation that is supposed to be one nation under God... There is no knowledge of God characterizing corporately the heart of our country. We are collectively untethering ourselves from the truth of God and from His holiness and His righteousness and true love. And we are plummeting headlong deeper and deeper into the abyss of unfaithfulness and wanton immorality and wickedness because it's popular. And God who is unchangeably holy, will have the same indictment against the sin of our land that he had against his own covenant people in Hosea chapter 4. Now in verse 4, having pronounced his divine indictment, God identifies the guiltiest ones in Israel. He singles them out. 
He's brought charges against the nation, and now he says, Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for my contention is with you, O priest. They're all guilty of going radically astray, but God's fiercest condemnation is reserved for the ones who led them there. See? The priests of Israel. And verse 6 makes it abundantly clear why specifically God is so incensed against the priests. It's because my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you, O priest, you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. So see, it's, it's not the priest's performance in the temple or their performance of their sacrificial duties that God is most upset with them about. It's that as the spiritual leaders of the people, they failed to lead the people according to the truth. They failed to function as the spiritual educators of the people of God and to demand the holiness that God's Word reveals. See, the Old Testament religious system was very, very different from all of the pagan religions around them, around the world. In those false religions of idol worship, the priests weren't teaching anybody anything. They just saw themselves as kind of the guardians of of these cultic mysteries and ceremonies of the cosmos and the false gods. And so when the people came to worship, they just worshipped in this rote, kind of mechanical way. Just kind of repeat after me. Kind of of do the mantra and and all will be fine for you. But, But in Israel, the faith that God had entrusted to the priesthood wasn't a mystery, it was a revelation of His truth and His will and His righteousness. It was the making known of His law and the holiness of God, revealing it to all the people, to every mind and conscience, so that it would make wise the simple even, right? As Psalm 19 says. The knowledge of God which was revealed by God, was supposed to govern everything as a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. So the priests were, they had a high calling. They were supposed to be leading the people of God to worship God to, according to the truth that He had revealed. But see, the priests themselves were, were spiritually blinded by their own sin. And what did Jesus say about that in Matthew 15? about the Pharisees. They're blind guides. And if the blind leave the blind, then they're going to both fall into a pit. And that's precisely what happened in Israel. Verse 5 spells it out. You stumble by day, and the prophet also stumbles with you by night. All of it leads to destruction and rejection in these verses. God's people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, and you're leading them straight off the cliff you priests and prophets. Once again, I think we're compelled to look at ourselves and to look at our land. America is not the promised land. America is not the chosen covenant nation that Israel was in the Old Testament times. But man, how our nation and the lives of countless people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge of God's will and God's law and God's hatred of sin. Millions of unborn lives are being destroyed by abortion because we have rejected what it means to be made in the image of God and sewn intricately together by Him in the womb. 
Countless lives and families are destroyed by addictions of every conceivable kind. Countless lives are destroyed by violence and abuse that come from unchecked selfishness and anger and malice because everybody's a victim and nobody's responsible in our culture. Everything's just a disease and there is no sin in our culture. Countless lives of men and women and children are destroyed by sexual perversion of every kind because whatever you feel is, is just a unique expression of, of you and who you need to be in this world. And so pornography and adultery and debauchery and perversions of every t- kind are, are producing all kinds of deviance and, and all of the dysphoria that gets celebrated now in our culture. And it's all contrary to knowledge. It's all contrary to what God reveals. Just look at, listen to Paul in Romans chapter 1. Although they knew God, because He's clearly displayed His eternal attributes and power and nature in, in creation, they knew Him, but they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And, and so they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, they actually became fools. And lived that way. They they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. And so God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. The dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. It's what's going on all around us today. The dishonorable passions whereby women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. This isn't commentary. This is just the Word of God. Men likewise giving up natural relations with women and being consumed with lust for one another. Committing shameless acts and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is... The knowledge that God reveals, but we just suppress it. We hold it down. We don't want it in our culture. And we could go on and on and and enumerate all of the myriad ways that rejecting the knowledge of God leads to all kinds of debasement and debauchery and immorality and the destruction that comes from all of those things, which is not even to say anything about the eternal destruction that, that, that waits at the end of all of those trajectories. Because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 very, very clearly says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. He reveals, that's the knowledge He gives in order to call us to repent of any of that sin. And to turn to Him for the grace by which we might be washed and cleansed and live in holiness. Our our land is absolutely teeming with every kind of depravity that falls underneath all of those kinds of headings and into all of those categories that Scripture reveals. And all of it is connected to the fact that the knowledge of God is being suppressed and rejected. And, and, and all of it enrages God. Hebrews 10 verse 31 reveals and says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Every human being has to contemplate that. That's a truth we suppress. Oh, no, no, God's not terrifying. God loves me whatever way that I am and doesn't want me to be any different than what I am. That's just not true. That's just not true knowledge of who He is. 
Our country needs to corporately contemplate how terrifying it is to fall into the hands of the living God. And the fact that he's being awfully patient so that people will come to repentance. And if there's anything that we learn from verses 4 through 6 here of Hosea 4, where God points the finger specifically at the priests and holds them in the highest contempt for not leading the people according to the knowledge of God, if there's anything that we could translate that to in the modern context of our culture and society and country, it's this. It's that the pastors of churches in America, the preachers in our land should be most terrified of leading astray the people of the holy living God, of preaching destructive lies and heresies in the name of Jesus and refusing to preach everything that God's word reveals because it's not popular, because people don't have an appetite for it. Because they want their ears tickled. But today there are myriad pastors exchanging the purity of God's truth for the perversity of whatever the godless culture wants. For what's popular. For what tickles people's ears instead of driving them to repentance and to the grace of God that is only found through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So, Moving on, God has indicted his people for their lack of faithfulness and love and for the lack of a knowledge of God. He has identified the worst offenders, the priests, for failing to lead people according to the knowledge of God. And in verse 7, God implicates them both, the people and the priests, according to the standard of his holiness and righteous judgment. He speaks about the priests first, verse 7. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. (laughs) I mean, that's a horrible irony, isn't it? What a horrible contrast to how it should have been, right? It should have been that the more priests there were in Israel, the more holiness flourished in Israel as they led people more and more to live holy lives. But it was the opposite. In fact, the more priests there were in Israel, the more sin there was. Which was why God was so indignant towards those priests. Again, we could very easily say the same kind of thing about our land, right? The massive multiplication of churches in America in the 20th and 21st centuries should be resulting in growing repentance and holiness and life transformation and all kinds of reformation and revival as minds are being renewed by the living and active truth and word of God, but it almost seems like the more people that graduate from our seminaries and the more pulpits that get filled and the more churches that get planted, the more wickedness gets permitted and promoted in our land. Here God says to Israel and and to the wicked wayward priests, I will change their glory into shame. And here's why he says in verse 8, they feed on the sin of my people and are greedy for their iniquity. Think about this. According to Old Testament Levitical law in the book of Leviticus, when animals were brought to make sacrifice for sin, the choicest meat, the best animals, the best cuts that were brought for the sin offerings, that became, after the sacrifice was made, that meat became the priest's food. They got, they, they got the, the prime grade A beef, see? 
After they sacrificed the best of the herd, they got to eat some of that meat for their dinner. So see, there's a a, a sense, I think, in which God is speaking very, very literally here. The priests actually love it when sin abounds because then more sacrifices are needed and they get to eat better. They're governed by their own bellies, by their own appetites, more than they are by holiness and the needs of the people before God. And, And also God is most likely also speaking figuratively here and saying that these sinful, greedy, unfaithful priests just love and revel in the wickedness and debauchery and ungodliness that was prevailing in Israel in those days. And so God very bluntly says, verse 9, it shall be like people like priests. God will hold them all in contempt. He will be an equal opportunity judge of wickedness in the land. No passes will be handed out to the priests just because they're priests. I'll punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat and not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply, for they have forsaken the Lord. Again, Derek Kidner has a great way with words, and and listen to how he sums all this up. He just says bluntly, food and sex have become these priests' obsession and food and sex will fail them, the one by shortage, the other by sterility. For it is a theme of Scripture and a fact of life that things material are precarious, and things merely sensual are ultimately frustrating. And again, you see it plainly, you see it obviously in the lives of people that are being destroyed by lust, by gluttony, by greed by indulgence, by addiction of all kinds in our land, right? Because sin itself is addictive, isn't it? And in their insatiable appetite, in their unquenchable thirst for sin, and the the fraudulent and fleeting pleasure that sin offers, people will endure its progressively destructive corruption in their lives and in their families and in their societies, for the sake of that temporary gratification. And we shouldn't be surprised. This is how it works. We know it's how it works. We know it's how it works by observation and also because God reveals it here to us. Sin begets more sin. It's like a virus. It multiplies as it spreads. Corruption and decay accelerate and grow logarithmically, exponentially, and lead more and more and more to destruction, eventually ultimate and eternal destruction. This is the interpretation that God Himself gives in verses 11 through 14. Wine and new wine and whoredom, all this, all this sexual immorality, it takes away the understanding, God says. It dulls the mind. It, it, it short-circuits the judgment. It washes away wisdom. That's what it tends to do. He's not saying wine itself is evil or bad. God's Word actually extols wine in many places. The problem is when the effects of wine become too strong. Taking away understanding, right? Impairing judgment and reason. And, and, and the problem especially is when that effect becomes more and more, that's what I'm looking for out of it. And then that leads to greater and greater excess, right? 
And it works that way with immorality also. And God is using that kind of drunkenness and intoxication from sin, both as a literal description of what people are doing and as something that, that pictures their spiritual debauchery also. And how the momentary pleasures of sin lead to greater and greater and greater indulgence, which causes more and more spiritual decline because wickedness snowballs in all kinds of ways. Look where it's led is, is what God is explaining in these verses. My people, right? I mean, we're talking about the people of God here, the people of Yahweh here, the people who, who were led out of Egypt, the people who, who were shown so much supernatural power and providence and being given the promised land and, and were lavished with so much mercy and kindness and unmerited love from God. These are the, these are the people that had been given the very word of God as opposed to all the pagan nations, but now they have come to forsake God so fully that in the absolute stupor of their spiritual drunkenness, they've actually been turning to chunks of wood for spiritual guidance. Literally, that's what he says. My people inquire of a thing of wood. They stop praying to me and they they ask a piece of wood what they should do. And we laugh, but you know what? Again, Consider the sources that we go to for wisdom in this world instead of praying to our God. Consider where we take our troubles and what we do to comfort ourselves instead of praying to our living God. This is how dull the hearts of the people of Israel have become from being drunk with the things of the world and the lusts of the flesh and the folly of human wisdom. Got to look at ourselves. Got to look at our land. Americans have become absolutely intoxicated with worldly wisdom, with licentiousness, with ungodliness of every kind. And, and, and in our land, people are in such a spiritual stupor, they don't even realize how debased and destroyed and corrupt the society has become and how ripe for divine judgment we are. And listen, God's own interpretation of it all is is this, he, here and in all kinds of other places like Romans chapter 1, sin always leads to more sin. Corruption will always increase unless and until true repentance is realized. That's true corporately of a nation and it's true individually in your life. You cannot leave sin unchecked anywhere. In your mind, in your heart, In your life. There's a reason why all throughout Scripture God uses the picture of of leaven, like yeast in a loaf of bread, to illustrate the way that sin permeates and pollutes. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole loaf, God says, right? If you've ever made bread, you know that. Big lump of dough, little pinch of leaven. By the time you bake it, it has suffused the whole thing and caused it all to rise. And that's what sin does. It just goes everywhere. An inappropriate thought here. Just a little lustful glance over there, right? Just this one web page that I shouldn't be looking at, but it's not going to really do too much harm, right? A little bit of self-justified anger here because of, of all that that guy did to me, but I won't let it get out of control. A touch of pride here, a touch of pride there, a dash of overindulgence, right? Excused by the long, hard week I've had. Just a pinch of spiritual laziness because I I need some me time, right? That's just like the addict who started with a little bit of meth. 
And soon it became a full-blown addiction, and their life and their family became consumed and destroyed. That's how sin works. That's God's interpretation of it. In Israel, the people had wandered now so far from God in their progressive sinfulness and corruption, they become so spiritually dull and lethargic towards God that instead of, of wanting to go and make pilgrimage down to the temple to worship Him in Judah, they would much rather just go up to a nearby hill and worship a worthless idol because, look at verse 13, because the shade was good. It's more pleasant up on the hill than the long journey to worship the living God. That's how consumed and controlled by their own comfort and convenience they'd become. Look at our land. They'd become both actually and physically, figuratively rather, dominated by, by harlotry and by adultery. That's what's described here. Verse 13 describes the reality of it that was rampant in the land. All of that outward physical immorality was also indicative of uh, and was a manifestation of their spiritual unfaithfulness towards God, which was what was festering like, like gangrene in Israel. In verse 14, God puts the onus on the men of the society like he had with the priests who should have been leading the people in the knowledge of God. Here what he's saying is that, is that whereas he designed the men to lead their wives and their families and their societies in holiness and godliness, instead the men followed after their own lusts and dragged everybody into sin with them and into corruption, into destruction. And the final word of it is, people without understanding will come to ruin. This is where it all goes. Verse 11 said that spiritual drunkenness and immorality take away the understanding. And now verse 14 says that lack of understanding leads to ruin. This is what God says. Remember, utter ruin was for Israel literally only a decade away. The Assyrians were already mustering their troops. And when they came, none would escape in Israel. That's historical fact. So finally, verses 15 through 19, God, having made his indictment, having identified the worst culprits in the land, having implicated both the people and the priests in his judgment, having interpreted the reality of sin's progressive corruption and the destruction that it inevitably brings, finally God gives this divine injunction. And notice in verse 15, it's aimed elsewhere. It's aimed outside of Israel. It's aimed down at the southern kingdom of Judah. And God is saying, stay away from the spiritual and moral rot and decay that's festering up in the north and because of which the judgment of God is mounting against Israel like a gathering storm. Let not Judah become guilty. Enter not Gilgal. That's a northern city. Don't... Don't come up from Judah to go to Gilgal because there's pagan temples had been built there and people were coming up from the south in order to indulge in that idolatry. Don't go to Beth-Avon. Ooh, this is a tough... This, Beth, the real name of the city in the north is Bethel. Bethel, which literally means the house of, house of God. But it's become so spiritually and morally polluted and corrupt. It's sin city, right? It puts Vegas to shame. It puts the Red District in Amsterdam to shame. 
So God calls it not Bethel, not the house of God. He calls it Beth-Avon, which literally means the house of evil. Don't go there, God says literally to the inhabitants of the southern kingdom. Don't travel up to the north to indulge in the wickedness that has come to characterize that land because it'll, it'll pollute you if you do and you'll become vulnerable to the judgment of God just as much as Israel has become. So the message there is a simple one, isn't it? Given how clearly and unambiguously God has revealed His hatred of sin, what He does about it in His wrath, how insidious sin is, its ability to entice and to intoxicate and to multiply and to grow and to corrupt and to destroy, the simple message is stay away from the decay. Because sin doesn't just multiply and fester and increase and and suffuse minds and lives like leaven. It also tends to be contagious like a virus. Bad company corrupts good morals. Paul simply says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, you got to be careful who you hang out with. you got to be careful who and what you let yourself be influenced by. Voices are constantly crying in your ear, here's what's right and here's what's wrong, and they are contrary to the Word of God, and you've got to be careful how much you expose yourself to those voices in other people, in the media, in the books you read, in the things you watch on TV, in the things you look at on the internet. You must be careful that the things that the world celebrates, but that God abominates, don't become enticing to your heart. Don't become attractive to your mind. And remember, it doesn't always start with the big, obvious, heinous things. The worst expressions of wickedness in the world. It starts with little, small compromises. And allowing things other than God to satisfy our souls more than God, which leads to bigger and bigger and bigger compromises and idols and immorality. We just finished the last chapter in our study of John Owen's great book, The Glory of Christ. And he concludes like this in one of the concluding paragraphs. He says, The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds full of other things than the glory of Christ. And these things weaken the power of grace. But when the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and His glory, these other things will be expelled. That's the message here. What are you filling your mind with? What are you filling your heart with? What are you filling your time with? We need to close, but let's close our our time in God's Word this way as we come together to the communion table. And it's a good thing, right? Having looked at sin this desperately, this deeply, this intimately, it's a good thing that we can come together to the communion table. Hosea chapter 4 has focused us so much on the ugliness and the perniciousness and the corruption of sin. But I want you, and turn with me actually, I want you to remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, turn there, I want you to remember those words that Paul proclaims in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I quoted a few of them earlier, you remember? Verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, 
nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are strong words, just like Hosea's. Those are serious words. Those are sobering words, just like God's words through Hosea. So remember. Remember the context. Remember what Hosea goes on to say. That even as God will judge sin and sinners, His ultimate will is to woo sinners back to Himself by His grace and mercy and love. In the fullness of His unconditional redeeming and refining love that's illustrated even as Hosea goes and purchases his adulterous wife out of her sexual slavery and brings her back and says, now repent of it, turn from it, be done with it, and live with me in faithfulness and love. So our God says to us, right? And remember the rest of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6, after saying that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, after enumerating all of the categories and kinds of sinful corruption that lead to ultimate destruction, what does he say next? And such were some of you, right? Such were some of you, unrighteous, unfaithful, immoral, idolatrous, adulterous, deviant sexually, drunken, greedy. Such were some of you, and the emphasis is on the word, were past tense. Past, and, 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 and really, in some way, shape, or form, such were all of us. Such was I, that's for sure. Unworthy of God's holiness, unworthy of God's love, unworthy of God's kingdom. And I know it's hard for Christians who have been saved by grace and and serious sin and guilt and shame in their lives. I know it's hard to hear God's indictment against sin in graphic terms like He lays them out in Hosea 4. So remember here as we close and come to the table, all of us who have been redeemed by God's grace and love, who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, remember Not to fall into the temptation to define ourselves in terms of what we were. Never see yourself in terms of what you were. You've got to see yourself and define yourself in terms, according to God Himself, of what you are in Christ Jesus. Such were some of you, idolatrous, adulterous, immoral, unfaithful, governed by sin, but... Paul says next in verse 11, and again the emphasis is on the word were, in Christ you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, our living God. Don't let yourself identify yourself in terms of what you were before Jesus redeemed you and washed you past tense and sanctified you and justified you. Do you notice there in verse 11 the past tense of all of those verbs? That's accurate in the Greek. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. You were washed. I know sin remains in you, it remains in me too, but in Christ, you're already clean in God's eyes. 
That's how he sees you. He sees you in Christ. He doesn't see you in your sin and shame, so don't see yourself that way. He sees you washed by the blood of Jesus from every spot and stain of sin already, right now. None of that sin from your past, none of the sin that remains is what defines you in the eyes of God who is holy because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And what does justified mean? I hope you know what it means. It means to be declared holy and righteous by God who is holy and righteous. That's what the word means. It means God says, I declare that you are as holy as I am holy. How can that be, you say? With the sin that I'm guilty of and the sin that remains in me, it is because of Christ who accounted His own perfect righteousness to you, even as much as your sin and mine was accounted to Him on that cross. And that's why He died. That's what you are. Clean, pure, washed, sanctified, justified in the sight of God according to His judgment. That's how He sees you. So see yourself that way as you are in Christ Jesus. Not what you were in the sin for which Jesus bled and died. You are truly, in God's eyes, white as snow, though your sins were as scarlet. So, so come to the table, washed and cleansed and redeemed and justified, proclaiming that everything that Christ did is real and is true and is, is definitive for what you are and who you are, and stand boldly and say, forget what I was, this is what I am. And I announce it, with gratitude towards Christ by taking His body and His blood to my lips and feasting in my soul upon the grace that He continues to give me to grow and to become conformed more and more into the image of His glory. Let's just, let's just stop and do all that together today. Let's pray and then let's sing and then let's come and feast on the grace of Christ as the people that He's made us to be. Father God, thank You so much for Your goodness. We praise You for this chapter which unveils for us the hideousness and the ugliness and the seriousness of sin and the severity of Your hatred of sin and Your wrath towards it because, Father, it makes us understand all the more potently how much You have loved us to have washed us and cleansed us and sanctified us and justified us through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we give you praise and we sing your praises now and we come eagerly to the table where you as our Father would feed us and nourish us and satisfy our hungry souls with all that the grace of Christ is. Praise God. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.